0: Welcome, Dr. James Beckett Sports Card Insights outtake episode. I was on uh, Kyle's Wax Museum podcast for uh, a while, and I just pulled out to 12 minutes or whatever it is of some of our back and forth about say he's very big on education. But I want to thank my sponsors, Top Panini Upper Deck, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, ComC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, and Hugston and & Scott Auctions. Uh yeah, thanks, Kyle. I will pay you in burritos uh, from Taco Bell. And uh, he always has a link for eBay and Fanatics, which is the new. They're not new, but they're coming on strong. So uh, patronize, Kyle. And uh, thank you for listening. Again, the whole episode is over on his uh, wax museum. Encourage you to do that. I enjoyed it. And here it is. What's your
1: philosophy of education today?
0: I basically think the education system in America is messing up in two ways that I want to defeat, and it affects the hobby as well, is that, that one, too many people are trying to tell people what to think instead of how to think. And then secondly, the long practice of debate that used to be in high schools, where you had to take a position in the debate, and you didn't know whether you are going to be for or against until they told you. So you had to be able to argue both sides of a proposition. People don't do that anymore. They're locked in on their way of thinking, and they think the other side uh, are idiots uh, or have no morals or scruples. I want to teach people how to think about things, and then I want to help them realize that there are two sides to every issue, every social issue, probably every sports card issue. I could argue whether or not prices are too high or prices are too low right now. Mm -hmm. I think you could make arguments. So the ability to make arguments and not to be a robot or monolithic and to see the nuance, I think that's part of what education is missing. So I don't know if that is a middle school concept, but I don't know why it couldn't be. Middle school kids, they want to be able to think for themselves. They don't want to be told what to think. And so why in the hobby should it be like that? I want to do what if kind of stuff occasionally. I want to remember the past in a way that some things in the past are not repeated Mm -hmm. because they they weren't good chapters.
1: There was a lot of really important non-pricing information in the front portion of the magazine. That could be articles, hot lists, player interviews, letters to the editor. And I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff out there. Even some of the advertisements to me were incredibly informative. What role did the other information come in addition to the? You've talked about education, but
0: it's also entertaining. It needed to be enjoyable and be understood. But data or just numbers can be pretty antiseptic. You really want to have a situation where it's appealing. I, I felt like our magazine wasn't going to grow if it was just a pure catalog That's not very much fun. We wanted to have a left brain appeal and a right brain appeal. We had some pretty strong art directors over the years and some excellent writers who've gone on to notable success in other fields. I just really thought we want to make this something that people be proud of. And that it'd be a read. It wouldn't be, I'm going to look up this card and then put the magazine on the shelf. Or I'm just going to bring it and roll it up. I'm going to, I can leave it on my, on the counter. I can leave it in the living room. I could show it to somebody and, and I could show them some of the articles. And some of the articles were diehard for collectors. But many of them were somebody that if they really enjoyed the sport... They could be drawn into it. There'd be a sports card tie-in. Basketball, there'd be something that would mention the memorabilia and and illustrate via the memorabilia and the cards. But it it was to broaden the appeal, Kyle, to grow the hobby. And and no one person can do that, but we were trying to do our
1: part in that. I know you mentioned that you since retired and come back to the collecting side more. Obviously, you're not as hands-on in the pricing as you used to be, but you have jumped into the podcasting arena. And, uh, and I'm very thankful that you have, by the way. You're educating through that means. Wouldn't you have loved to have that when you started? I didn't have time,
0: Kyle. I had the equivalent of at least two full-time jobs. Back in the day when I was doing a heavy duty work on the pricing with the magazine and the books and running the company and being a husband and father, that's probably four full-time jobs. And I had a heart attack, but I'm okay now. But That's a wake-up call that I, I shouldn't be doing that much. We had a podcast. 25 years ago, it was like an internet radio show is what it was. Okay, we had a guy that came in. I was maybe on the first one as a guest and Rich did it. Rich came in and did a trivia thing, but it never really took off. We had some sponsors, but it it just was ahead of its time. I didn't have time for that stuff. So to delegate that to somebody that, number one, does it better and number two, enjoys it more, that was easy for me. But now I'm realizing when you're delegating, I don't know if you're married and have kids, but you can't delegate being a dad. You can't delegate being a husband. You can't say, honey, I won't be home for dinner, but I'm sending my assistant to have dinner with you, <laughs> or, or here's somebody's going to take my kids to the zoo. You can get away with that once or twice. Now, if you're the dad, if you're the husband, that's, you can't assign that to somebody else and not think you're shirking. But the podcast, I can't delegate telling a story that only I know. I can't delegate doing a tribute to somebody when I'm reading the obituary written by somebody that never met the guy, and I knew him, and he was a pillar of the industry, and I set up next to him, it shows in the 70s. And I can tell stories that are more personal. So that's the stuff that only I can do. And if only I can do it, I need to do it. I looked at the calendar and thought, I'm getting old. <laughs> I need to be sharing these stories. And then I realized that it isn't just me sharing the stories, because otherwise I just write a book, put the stories in there. The problem is I can't write a linear book because I can't think of all the stories. But if I'm interviewing you and you're interviewing me, and I'm discussing things with Rich and other guys that that worked with me over the years, I'm thinking, yeah, I remember that story. And then I can unpack it further. And so the interview things have been wonderful because you just can't say, tell me what happened in 1990. I could go back and look at all the magazines and oh, what was I thinking then? But if I talked to somebody I was working with in 94, that was the editor of our hockey magazine. He and I are going to bat things around. Things are going to come up that I haven't thought about in a long time. And I wouldn't think about him other than him bringing it up. He's going to jog my memory. I'm going to jog his. And it's all recorded for people to listen to. And by doing it every day, I don't expect everybody to listen to everyone, but they can listen to anyone they want to. And I'm trying to make them timeless and evergreen. That if they're more interested in basketball or football or hockey or baseball or the old days, vintage or most of these episodes are
1: short enough that they're as described. It seems you mentioned that you wanted to create something and educate at that time. You have the podcast now, but at that time you wanted to educate something that you said you could show to people. And that people could look through. And I think at that time, attention spans were a lot longer. And and people didn't mind consuming something of that length. We didn't have smartphones even in the 90s. I know you started earlier than that, but the 90s, the internet was even in its infancy. And you talked about wanting to create something to help equalize the field. If you were to set out with the same... Purpose today. What approach would you take and and what mediums would you home in on? Do you think? In the digital world, it's how do you charge for some of these things? Is it subscription? Are there micro charges? Let's talk about how information is shared today. We have podcasts, we have YouTube, social media is huge, all sorts of apps, card ladder will help us with our portfolios and our collections. As an educator, I guess one thing that's a little overwhelming to me is the speed at which all of this information is shared. What do you think are some of the benefits and challenges? of so much stuff being shared so fast.
0: It's like the book, Paradox of Choice. You have so many choices and there's so much out there and it happens so quickly that just to take it back to your podcast and my podcast, is that some of these things that these apps are doing is that if you do it today or do it tomorrow, you're gonna to get a different answer. But a lot of the issues you're dealing with in your podcast and I'm dealing with, the answer is the same today as it is tomorrow. So there are principles. And because I just think it becomes a chore if in order to buy a single card at a show, you have to research on the spot instantly to make sure you're having a good deal. That you don't have some sense of whether it's a good deal based on priced is marked that you have to verify through one of the apps or checking the eBay comp, something like that. And that that's a lot of friction there. They've reduced the friction. Okay. So as an educator we're teaching kids how to look things up. And even when the lookup is very fast, it's still looking something up that you don't know. It's if you went to Spain for Spanish and all you had was an online dictionary, a digital dictionary. So you could translate the words of the sentences. At some point, if you really love going to Spain, you ought to learn the language so that you're not having to do a translating app to look up every third word. I believe knowledge is is more than information and data. You got data, you organize it into some useful information, but the knowledge is making it uh, really applicable. And then the wisdom comes from being able to apply it. I I think they're still stuck in the data phase or the information phase. Let let me gather the information. That's why the card ladder guys are noteworthy. They're trying to make it more knowledge-based that they're using uh, transparent formulas which I, I didn't do that. We, we weren't going to open up and say, hey, here's how we're getting the prices. But again, they can do that because their secret sauce is in their sanitizing of the data. Okay, mm-hmm. we had to do that stuff on the fly. There's no way we could have done, and they're only doing 10,000 cards or something. We were doing a million cards. So it's just more challenging.
1: To talk about, information moving so quickly and and I, I guess i was thinking that the data being there quick is a good thing but it goes against your philosophy of education where you said we need to teach the how which you know, which will show us how to get to that, which kind of went with your answer there. I appreciate that take on it. One of the things that's concerned me a lot lately is the spread of misinformation. And the main thing that's killing me right now as a patch guy is the classification of all the relics and when they were worn. And I've been beating that drum for years and people are just now discussing it. But for whatever reason, it seems like misinformation spreads a lot quicker than the good stuff. And uh, I know that's not anything new. Uh, But like I said, it seems like it's spreading quicker. There's not a lot of independent analysis right now. Either information seems to be taken at face value, which goes back to what you said, where you said we need to learn how to think and not necessarily what to think. How did you fight misinformation in the days of your publication? And then what do you think we can learn from those days that will help us to do the same now?
0: Statistics is the science of decision-making in the face of uncertainty. You've got to make a decision, even not making a decision uncertainty you'll always have. Even if you had all the data, you really don't have all the data. You have to know how to make a decision based on the data that you have. People say that misinformation is a lie. It doesn't have to be a lie because that implies intent. It can just be partial information or Mm. selectively organized information, putting your best foot forward. Some people call that salesmanship. If it's intent to deceive, then it still be salesmanship, but it's not the kind of salesmanship that I want to participate in. So I think it's partial information, it's circumstantial information. Basically now it's not enough, Kyle, to say that a, a, a grade of eight uh, sold for X, because you have to say, well, wait, what company got the eight? Okay, but then even then, is it a strong eight or a weak eight? Did somebody say that it's one of the best eights? Is it an off-centered eight? So that's partial information. So to look at a selective comp for a week eight to point out that's why you should get a better deal on this eight that's a good-looking eight, better eye appeal. So it's policing it if it's egregious, and it's equipping the collectors and, and the buyers to know what questions to ask and to realize all eights are not created equal. And last month's price, is it didn't necessarily go up 1% a month. Some things go up, some things go down if the comp is six months old or six years old. I think Letter is trying to deal with some of those things, but it's hard. And their behind the scenes stuff is what Chris and Christina do of sanitizing the data. Because we scraped eBay. We had a license from eBay to get their data over the years, back in the day. And that was a lot of work because everything is listed wherever it's listed. And so you have to weed out the ones that were incorrectly listed, misleadingly listed. It's just there. But eBay it was—we said eBay, why don't you make standardized list- listings? Standardized listings that go by uh, Beckett nomenclature. They said, why don't you mind your own business? We have a huge <laughs> business, and uh, you are one of the categories, and that would be imposing a straitjacket on the freeform listing that uh, has allowed us to grow so much. So didn't uh, push back on that. That's certainly there. But if everything was really clear, they'll put PSA ten question mark or something. Stuff like that. So that is misleading. And I don't think it's innocent, but if people were to say, hey, I don't want to buy from that person. I've realized now from these various nationals I've been to, all of them, I only like to buy from people that I like, that I think are that are decent, that are good, that are straight shooters. If they're not, there's plenty of places to shop. So if people say, I'm not going to shop with people that are using deceptive prey practices, then they either get squeezed out, they get the message, I need to clean up my act. There's so many ways to make money of being a playing it straight.
1: Yeah, you talked about learning how to think earlier and and having to price every card and comp every card is is just not ideal. I heard someone on another show talk about how he looks for liquid cards at every table, and if they're priced competitively, then he thinks he can trust the other cards that are there. That's how he delves into the how to think. I thought that was a a pretty good approach that I'd never heard before. You mean he's determining their macro pricing that
0: maybe they priced things a year ago and didn't change the prices? And if he's Mm -hmm. seen enough of that, then he said, "Okay, then I can see that anybody that's gone up in the last year would probably be a bargain because this guy hadn't remarked his prices. That shows insight.